So imagine a chart with essentially four types of loans. The first loan is just going to be your standard recourse bank loan. Second one's going to be Fannie Mae. Third's going to be Freddie Mac. And then fourth is going to be non-recourse bridge. Okay. Most people who do single family, if you're going to rent this property, most of them are just going to get like your standard 30-year fully amortizing loan. That's recourse to you, the borrower, right? So that's pretty similar to commercial. The only change is two things. One is commercial loans are only going to be typically three to five years. And then your amortization is going to be probably 20 to 25 year amortization. So that is what most new investors, if you're buying a property, let's say it's 500,000 or a million dollars, then you're going to use that bank recourse loan. And so that's how most people get started. They do a small loan like that. And then they move up to sort of your second or third loan, which is your Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. This is the Everything Real Estate Investing Show with Sean Penn where we interview local real estate investors and professionals to go over tips, tricks, and investing strategies to help you learn about the business and to enable you to achieve your financial goals. And now, welcome to the show. Hey everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Everything Real Estate Investing Show with Sean Pan. Today we have James Ng. James is with Old Capital and specializes in multifamily commercial loans. And in this episode, James will tell us everything that we need to know about commercial loans. We'll go over how it works, the different terms, and why the commercial lenders don't provide 30-year fixed loans. So if you're interested in learning more about getting a commercial loan, you need to listen to this episode. If you're new to this podcast, subscribe to the show and leave a review. We release episodes every Wednesday and Sunday and release the show notes on our site, everythingrei.com podcast. By the way, if you need help financing your next real estate project, check out Conventus Lending. Conventus is the best hard money lender with amazing rates and incredible service. I've used them for years and they've always been incredibly easy to work with. If you need a hard money loan, contact me at sean at everythingrei.com to get $1,000 off of your processing fee. And if you want to know the secrets of how investors in the Bay Area are making huge profits in one of the most expensive markets in the world, download the free Ultimate Bay Area Investing Handbook on our website, everythingrei.com. Enjoy. All right, James, thank you so much for being on the show today. Go ahead and introduce yourself and let us know who you are and tell us what you do. Yeah, thanks for having me today. I mean, my background, sort of born and raised in Houston, went to school in Austin at UT. And the last, I would say, 15 years have been in commercial real estate. The first 10, really on the risk underwriting side. The last five have been more on the sales loan origination as a mortgage broker and investor. So the last five years have been really focused in on multifamily, so sort of five units and up. And most of my deals are probably anywhere from 50 units all the way up to 300 units. Yeah. Do you want to talk about the company you work for as well as the amazing podcast that you guys host? Yeah. So I've been at Old Capital now for the last five years. We've really been doing the podcast for five or six years and you know have a big presence in Texas. We do loans nationwide. Last year, we did about a billion dollars in multifamily loans. That's crazy. And I remember when I was trying to buy an apartment complex about two years ago, I actually called your office to at least get some information about how the whole process works. Yeah. I mean, it's crazy. Multifamily lending is some of the best of all property types. And it was five years ago I did. So when I was at GE Capital, we did two types of loans. One was bridge loans that were sort of three to five years and CMBS loans, which were your longer term tenure, tenure loans on stabilized properties. And so I did one, you know, one month I do an office loan in Phoenix. The next month I might do a retail center in Austin, right? So it was all types of commercial properties. But then the last five years, I've been really focused in on multifamily, Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, bridge lending, and multifamily loans are just the best that you can get. 
So it's a huge advantage to be a multifamily investor. So let's go into this. I don't think a lot of people who listen to the show have done a commercial deal themselves, and it's completely different from getting a residential loan. So why don't you give us the whole background of you know, what it is, what are some of the requirements, and what are some advantages and disadvantages of commercial loans? Yeah, so I'll try to do this without a chart. I usually have a chart. So imagine a chart with essentially four types of loans. The first loan is just going to be your standard recourse bank loan. Second one's going to be Fannie Mae. Third's going to be Freddie Mac. And then fourth is going to be non-recourse bridge. Okay. Most people who do single family, they are going to get just sort of your standard. If you're going to rent this property, most of them are just going to get like your standard 30-year fully amortizing loan. That's recourse to you, the borrower, right? So that's pretty similar to commercial. The only change is two things. One is commercial loans are only going to be typically three to five years. And then your amortization is going to be probably 20 to 25 year amortization. So that is what most new investors, if you're buying a property, let's say it's 500,000 or a million dollars, then you're going to use that bank recourse loan. And so that's how most people get started. They do a small loan like that. And then they move up to sort of your second or third loan, which is your Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. And those are going to be for properties, a million dollars. The loan amount needs to be a million dollars or higher. The property needs to be stabilized. So 90% occupied for the last 90 days. And then you get better terms. So it goes non-recourse. It goes 30-year amortization. And that's probably 65 to 70% of the multifamily market are those two loans. So Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae. And then the last piece is non-recourse bridge. So this is loans for over $5 million. And this is going to be for more experienced operators. Let's say the property is 70% occupied and you're trying to take it to 90, 95%. You're going to put, let's say 10,000 or 15,000 a unit, which is a lot in Texas, into the deal. That's where you're going to use a non-recourse bridge. That's going to be three to five years. It'll be floating interest rate. and It'll probably be closer to like a five, five and a half percent interest rate. And so those are really like the four main types of loans. I would say the big differences are recourse versus non-recourse, the amortization, and then all of these are balloon payments. So they're not fully amortizing, which is a big difference compared to most of the people who go out and get like 10 single family Fannie Mae loans. They're all 30 years and fully amortizing, right? And there's no prepay. On all these loans, there's typically a prepayment penalty of at least 1% or higher. So that's really the difference. I mean, in comparison, so take away Fannie and Freddie, if you did any other commercial property type. So if you did office, industrial, retail, there's the recourse bank loan and there's non-recourse bridge, but there's no Fannie and Freddie. And so that's a huge disadvantage on these other property types compared to multifamily. Do you know why there's no fully amortized loans for these commercial buildings? It's just that most people don't hold them for 30 years. Most people, they'll get like typically a five, seven or 10 year Fannie Freddie, and then they'll sell it in three to five years. It's just one of those things like you own these things. And typically most people aren't long-term holders. I mean, most people in this last, I would say the last 10 years, I've seen properties turn two or three times in the last 10 years. So it just, most people don't hold them for the full loan term. That's completely different from like the small or single family or small multifamily space where people sometimes hold it for their whole lives. And actually, you know, I was wondering because you said that people don't usually hold them for 30 years, but isn't the whole point of real estate, the fact that you can, you know, hold onto a property for your entire life and then die and pass on that to your kids and then have them step up in basis and yada, yada, yada. In theory. Yeah. But I think it also comes down to 
there's really like three types of multifamily investors, right? So one is like your independent owner who is going to buy the deal on their own, right? So they're going to buy like a $3 million property. They'll put, you know, $500,000 down and then get like a $2.5 million loan. And they'll hold that deal for like 10 years, right? They have no other investors. It's just them. They're going to sign the loan. They're going to manage the property. So that's your independent owner. There's actually not that many of those in the space that I'm in. Most of them are general partners. So the second type of investor is a general partner. The general partner finds a larger deal, right? They find a hundred units or 200 unit deal. They might raise, they might buy it for $10 million, raise $3 million from limited partners, and then essentially take a portion of the deal, right? They might take 15, 20% of the deal for doing all the work. That guy, he gets a portion of the cash flow along the way, but he really doesn't get paid until he sells the deal. And so that's why a lot of these transactions after three to five years, they sell the deal because they haven't made any money except for just their cash flow that they've been adding. But really the big money comes at the end of the transaction for these syndicators. And so that's why they're typically holding it three to five years and then selling. And then a lot of these properties, you know, the business plan is to really come in, fix the property, fix the problems, raise the rent, and then sell it. And usually after three to five years, you have to do another capital raise because the property needs more money. And so it's harder for people to really justify doing just like a refinance and then holding onto the property because it just doesn't work for a lot of these guys. Makes sense. And I was also wondering too, who are the end buyers? Like these syndicators go in and they fix the property, but then they end up selling it to somebody. Who are those people? So in the last couple of years, it's sort of, you know, in the tech world, people will say like version one. So it'll be like, you know, rehab 1.0, rehab 2.0, rehab 3.0. So each version, people are going higher, right? So the first guy might come in and do the exterior, right? But then in the second rehab, that guy comes in, he does half the interiors. And then third rehab, that person does, you know, the rest of the interiors. And then that guy sells it. And now they just go, they go granite, they go quartz, they do stainless steel, right? There's all these levels that people keep cranking, like ratcheting up how nice the property is. And so a lot of these properties, the problem right now is depending on the age of the property, there's only so much you can do, right? Like if you have an older property that's, you know, a flat roof, you're not turning it into a pitch roof. Or if you have a a deal with eight foot ceilings, you're not turning into a 10 foot ceiling class A property. So there's sort of limits on how far you can take some of these properties. But every time they've done these rehabs, the rents have gone up. And so that's allowed people to raise the value of the property. So there's always still some meat on the bone for you. There's always some meat on the bone. You know, I think right now people are going to have to hold their properties for a little bit longer because the next two years or three years, I mean, rents are pretty much going to be flat to negative. And so it's going to be hard to really come in and put 10,000 in a unit and raise the rent 150 bucks. It's going to be hard. Right. Yeah, well, we're going to go into how the whole state of the market has changed because of coronavirus in a little bit. I still want to go into more of some details on the loan. So can you tell us, like, what are some of the requirements for getting a commercial loan and some of the costs associated with it? Yeah, so let's just use, let's just say it's a $5 million property, $4 million loan, right? And then you have to raise a million in equity. You put that down, you get a $4 million loan. And let's say me and you were buying it, then to qualify for that loan, we need a $4 million total net worth. So I could have 2 million, you have 2 million. That qualifies from the net worth standpoint. Liquidity, you need 10% of the loan amount. So 
10% of 4 million, 400,000. So we need that in cash or marketable securities. And we have to show the bank statements on that. So they're very strict, Fannie and Freddie on that. And the last thing is one of us needs multifamily experience. If one of us has multifamily experience, five units or higher on a similar type property. So let's say this is 50 units for $5 million. As long as one of us has multifamily experience, then we qualify for the loan. If you're missing any part of that, you need somebody else, a partner, somebody else to sign with you to qualify for the loan. Yeah. So in the beginning, if you're just starting out, you should probably have some kind of mentor or a friend who is willing to do this with you. Yeah. And uh, a lot of times, let's say, let's say we were splitting the deal. Let's say we were getting 20% of the equity. Let's say I had the experience. You did not have the experience yet. I might get, I don't know, 15% and you get 5%, right? So depending on what people are bringing to the table, I like to think about it as sort of like pieces of a puzzle, right? And the people who, person who finds the deal, person who raises the equity, person with net worth and liquidity, and then the fourth thing really is multifamily experience. So those four things, if somebody on the team doesn't have one of those four things, they're probably not needed and they probably shouldn't be receiving any equity. But as you're piecing that together, you know, the guy with three of those four, he's getting the most equity, right? And the person who's, let's say, coming in, just bringing net worth and liquidity, they might only get one to 2% of the equity. Yeah, it makes sense. And that's all like, I guess, determining on how the partners decide to split it up in the first place. That's right. Are there any other like studies that you have to do compared to like for single family properties, we get a loan, it's usually just an appraisal. What else do you have to do for commercial? Yeah. So when you start the loan process, you essentially get three reports and the lender will order these. It'll be an engineering report, a environmental report, and appraisal. And the engineering report, they're going to go out there. They're going to look at about 10% of the units and they're going to give you a list of immediate repairs or deferred maintenance items that you have to fix. And then they're also going to build what's called a capital reserve schedule. And that's going to look at the next 10 to 12 years what are the major CapEx items that you have? They're going to add up all those divided by 12, divided by the number of units and determine your replacement reserve. So that's the engineering report. The environmental is called a phase one. And that essentially is going to tell you, all right, is there any you know, underground storage tanks on your property? Is there any, they're going to look at sort of groundwater, any groundwater contamination. They're going to look at the surrounding areas, make sure there's not like a dry cleaner or a gas station near you and there you know, leaking stuff onto your site, they're going to do that type of search. And then the third is the appraisal. The appraisal is going to go out there, look at, you know, your rent roll, T12, trailing 12 income, and forecast sort of what your value is today. And then what's your value when you do your rehab. So let's say you're doing 500,000 in rehab, what's your after sort of repaired value, or they call it as stabilized sort of on the multifamily side, but they're, they're going to really rely on the income approach. Whereas most residential is sort of sales comps. I mean, they're going to have sales comps in there, but almost all multifamily is done on income. Mm -hmm. I mean, I do see some multifamily properties near gas stations. Does that mean that those properties are not financeable or what do they do in that case? So as long as they're, so what they do is they do like a search around that area. And essentially there's all these environmental studies that are done and it tells you sort of where the storage tanks are on that gas station and then which way the groundwater flows and if there's been any leaks from that gas station. So as long as the gas station's in good order, there hasn't been any leaks and the water is not flowing like onto your property or anything, the contamination, then it's usually fine. Where we've seen issues is where, let's say, you know, there was a dry cleaner 
and they tore down the dry cleaner, but then underneath the property, they still had a bunch of contaminants and then they put a multifamily on top of it or something. Right. So like when stuff like that happens, then it becomes a lot harder to finance it. But most of the time on multifamily, if it's been financed by Fannie or Freddie, then they've gotten around that. So that's always one thing that I like to check is what's the current debt on the property? Because that's a way of making sure that it's sort of past the sniff test of Fannie and Freddie on the environmental side. So basically, if it's already gotten a Freddie or Fannie uh, loan, then it could probably get another Freddie or Fannie loan in the future. Yeah, most likely. Yeah. Okay. Now, do people usually get their own like new debt or do they just take over another person's loan, I assume? So it depends, right? So let me let me give you an example. There's a loan right now. Essentially, let's say the purchase price is, let's go with that $5 million. And they said, look, you can assume my loan. It's a $3 million loan. So you have to put down $2 million in equity, which is pretty heavy, right? So that's 60% leverage. Or you can just pay off the loan and put new debt, right? And you know, you might have, the prepayment penalty might be $500,000, so then the new buyer would have to pay $5.5 million, but they could get a, let's say, $4 million loan, right? So your down payment only goes to $1.5. So you have to make that decision as a buyer, right? At this time right now, there's a lot more uncertainty in the market. So most people are just doing loan assumptions. But you know, the last three years, you could get a better interest rate. You could get more interest only, higher leverage. Everything was better when you were doing deals new debt. And so- most people did new debt the last three years versus loan assumptions. Mm-hmm. And if you assume someone's loan, isn't there something called like a supplemental or something that you can add on top of it? Yeah. So supplemental, let's say going back to that. So $5 million deal and you get a $3 million, that's the current loan, right? They can add up to a supplemental loan amount up to 75% of your purchase price, right? You can go up, let's say you add 500000 or a million dollars at that point. So you wouldn't be able to take it all the way up to a million, maybe 750 on that deal to get up to 75%. But it usually is, you have to use the same lender. You have to qualify at a 130 debt service coverage, which is higher than your typical 125. And it can be, because it's with the same lender, it's a second mortgage for them. So they're not usually that excited about doing it, right? Because they're saying, look, I got like two years ago, I put $3 million on this property in debt. And now you're telling me I got to put, you know, another 500,000. I don't really want to do that. And so it's not always the easiest process. Do supplemental loans add time to the clock or is it going to be the same terms in terms of when the balloon payments do? Yeah, it's coterminous with the existing. So if there's still seven years on the first, it'll be coterminous with it. Got it. Uh, can we talk about DSER and how that whole calculation is actually calculated? Because you know, when it comes to net operating income, did they just take trailing two years or they're going to look at your projections to determine DSER? Well, you better get your note sheet out on this one. So let me walk you through. I'll try to start at the top. Um, this is probably the most confusing thing for people because everybody thinks they know how to calculate NOI and everybody calculates it differently. And so the way Fannie and Freddie calculate NOI is if you start at the top, the most important number on the sheet is called net rental income, okay? And so that's the actual amount that you're collecting for the past three months. So they're gonna take the last three months and annualize that, right? So take the T3, annualize that. That's what they're gonna use for net rental. They're gonna look at all your other income and take T12, the last 12 months of that. So that's your total income, okay? And then when you get down to expenses, 
they're essentially going to take pro forma everything. So they're going to take pro forma taxes. They're going to take the buyer's insurance, the buyer's payroll, the buyer's R&M. All that stuff is all going to be pro forma, except the only thing that they're really going to take is T12 utilities. So the water bill, the electric bill, all gas bill, all those things are going to be T12. And so when you think about it, and I made this on the last video I did, the most important thing as a seller is really to focus on net rental. But that's another thing because that's what Fannie and Freddie are going to use. So you got T3 net rental, T12 other income, pro forma expenses, except for utilities. And then they have replacement reserves, which is typically 300 a unit. And that is your NOI. So once you get down to that number, it needs to be a 125 debt service coverage. So what that means is, let's say NOI is 125,000 and your debt service, which is principal and interest is 100,000, then you qualify for that loan amount. If let's say you want a bigger loan amount and the debt service is 110, but your NOI is only 125, then you're not going to qualify. So that is the minimum. Most people would want, you know, 135,000 coverage on 100,000, right? But that is the minimum that the lender needs to be comfortable with giving you the loan. Got it. How is vacancy rate taken into account in this calculation? It's at the top, right? So if let's say your collections, most people, let's say they're 95% physically occupied, right? But then, you know, there's always bad debt. There's always, let's say two or 2% bad debt or something like that. So you're 93% economically occupied. So they're always going to take those last three of collections, last three months of collections and annualize that. The minimum vacancy that they use total is 5%. So let's say you, you, you're 100% collected at 100,000 each each month, they're still going to take 5% off. Okay, but if you're at 90%, they're not going to take an additional 5% of that number. No, there's not, there's no additional. Yeah, there, there's already a 5% vacancy, yeah. Okay, and obviously with this being said, the seller has to have good books, otherwise they won't give you this loan. Uh, yeah, so you're going to need monthly financials from the seller broken out, you know, I mean, on the rental side, I need net rental, I need other income. And then on the expense side, basically like I need five to 10 expense categories. I mean, whether it's an Excel or whether it's, you know, Yardi or Resmin or any of these third-party software companies, you know, it's an advantage to buy from sort of a mom and pop owner operator, but then sometimes the debt is harder to get. What have you seen people doing in those cases where their records are just not super clean? Yeah, so they'll do like a recourse bank loan or non-recourse bridge. And then once they come in, stabilize it, get like a good 12 months of income, then they'll go back and refi with Fannie or Freddie or just sell the deal. That makes sense. So what do they do for under $1 million? Like they can't do Freddie and Fannie. Are they stuck in this three to five year small bank loans for the rest of the time they're holding the property? That's right. Oh, wow. Yeah, so... This is what happens. If you go buy like a 20 unit deal in Texas and it's $500,000, you're going to learn real quick that there's really not that much economies of scale. And you're either going to want to quit this business or you're going to want to go buy 50 units or 100 units or 200 units because you want third party property management in there. And then the irony is the bigger the property you buy, the more efficient it is and the better financing that you get. Yeah. It's interesting to think about because I love my fourplex. In Florida, I wanted to increase it, you know, 20 units, five or yeah, it's five times more than my fourplex. So it doesn't seem like it's that much more work, but yeah, I guess it is harder. You're probably dealing with a different kind of tenant base. And then if you just go higher to like the 100 or 200 units, now you can have professional property management in-house, like, I don't know, maintenance people and all that stuff. 
Yeah, in-house, yeah, you have someone there full-time. I think probably around that 75 to 100 units, you can have full-time property manager, full-time maintenance. You have third-party property management. They're going to do all your accounting. They're going to put together all the reports for you, do all your leasing. Yeah, it's going to be a lot easier. Mm-hmm. Uh, you want to talk about yield maintenance and the prepayment penalties and how all that's calculated? Yeah, I mean, I wish that calculation was as easy to do on audio. But essentially, the way I like to think about it is when you get a loan with yield maintenance. All right, so let's say you go out and you do a loan today, 2020, and it matures in 2030. And you get, let's say, a 4% interest rate. So the person who buys that loan, so there's an investor who buys that loan, you're guaranteeing them a 4% interest rate on, let's say, a million dollars for the next 10 years. And they're going to want that 4% for the next 10 years. And let's say three years from now, you're like, hey guys, I'm selling this property. And they're like, no problem. You can sell the property, but all those payments for the next seven years, they're still due. All right. And you're going to have to pay that interest, but you're just going to have to pay it today. And so that yield maintenance penalty can be anywhere from, you know, it could be 10%, 20% of the loan. And it's all dependent on where the current interest rates are as well. And so if your loan is locked in at 4%, okay, that's great. But where's 10-year treasury? 10-year treasury is 0.6%. So that spread makes it more and more difficult for you to, or makes it more expensive for you to pay off. So when at the beginning of the year, 10-year treasury was closer to 2%, right? So you could essentially go out and buy double the amount of 10-year treasuries and replace your loan, right? But now, it dropped to 0.6. So now you have to buy almost like four times the amount to replace it, or even more, sorry, at least six times the amount instead of two times the amount. So when treasuries dove from 2% down to 0.6, that made everybody's prepayment penalty on yield maintenance go up significantly. So most people, that's why sellers are taking loan assumptions right now. And because the prepays are extraordinarily high. And if you can, you know, Freddie Mac has what's called a step-down prepayment, and that is a percentage of the loan. And you typically pay a higher interest rate, and it's typically lower leverage, but your prepayment penalty is significantly lower. So is that the one where it's like first year, it's 5%, then 4, 3, 2, 1 as years go down? That's right. Yep. And so that product is on the small balance loans, and it is really from a million all the way up to 7.5 million in loan amount. And so if the property fits, I usually try for people to do that loan. But if for whatever reason, let's say it's, you know, a $10 million loan, you just can't fit it into that program. And so you have to go with Fannie Mae and Fannie Mae's prepayment is yield maintenance. Got it. What are some of the uh, like leverage amounts that people are getting for these properties? Let's talk about the max. The max is 80%. And, you know, that's going to be your appraised value at 80%. And then the debt service coverage needs to be 125. But most deals right now are probably in that 70 to 75% range. And the reason for that is just that in the last, probably last year or so, it's been pretty difficult. Pricing's gotten higher. And so people just were paying more. And so, you know, the loan amounts didn't go up correspondingly, right? The NOI, we went... When we did that NOI calculation on debt service coverage, we never talked about price, right? So as the prices of these deals went higher and higher, the debt stayed the same. And so that's probably actually what is going to save 
a lot of these deals is that it didn't matter what you paid. It mattered what the cash flow was on that property. And so a lot of these Fannie and Freddie loans weren't getting over levered. People were just putting in more equity. But on the non-recourse bridge side, that was typically based on pro forma. And so they didn't look at collections. And so what that means is a lot of those deals are over levered right now. Right. Because not getting the rents that they wanted. That's right. And who are the ones who are supplying these uh, like bridge loans? There's a lot. I mean, in the last two years, they came out of the woodwork. So it was just people, it was debt funds, people were that were just chasing yield. I mean, your interest rates were so low, treasuries were only one or 2%. And they were saying, all right, if I buy this deal, my cap rate is five to 6%, right? But if I loan against this deal at, let's say 75 to 80%, I could get five and a half or 6%. So essentially the same rate of return at you know a basis point, uh, 20% lower leverage compared to equity, right? So they were at a safer position in the capital stack and some of these bridge lenders, I mean, essentially they're going to come in when that loan matures or that person can't make the payment, they're just going to come in and foreclose and take the property. Mm-hmm. How has the landscape changed since this whole coronavirus pandemic? Yeah. I mean, in March, sort of mid-March, I probably had four or five deals that people were in best and final trying to win deals and essentially it just shut off. I mean, buyers got scared. I mean, I had one deal you know, the first round of offers were close to 16 million. And then two weeks later at best and final, there were 14 million. So we were seeing anywhere from probably a 10 to 15% discount for the uncertainty. Fannie and Freddie essentially added an interest reserve. So before they would just give you the loan, you might put up two months of real estate taxes and insurance in escrow. Now they want 12 months to 18 months P&I and they want 12 months of real estate taxes, 12 months of insurance, 12 months of replacement reserve. So that ends up being like an extra 5 to 10% in cash at close on all these Fannie and Freddie loans on top of, you know, they're going to underwrite it a lot more strict. And so it's people have essentially stepped away the last month and a half from any deals that they were acquiring. And, you know, we had a couple of deals close in April, but those really went under contract in February. So now everybody who does not have to sell has taken their deal off the market. And what we're seeing now is the only people who are trying to sell deals are they have near-term maturity or their deal's about to break somehow in terms of, you know, they're not able to make the debt payment, their occupancy is too low, and they just have to do something. They're going to have to do a capital call or sell this deal before it goes into foreclosure. So most of those deals are broken. NOI is zero or negative. And they have to sell the deal. Right. Especially because right now, I think, you know, there was a study that said that 33% of people didn't pay their rent on time in April. I think that's very market driven. So I'm in about 20 deals here in Dallas. And in April, they collected probably 90, 95% of the rent that they were expecting. And then even in May, so today we're, you know, it's first week of May. And I just had a call with about 10 general partners and they're anywhere from 80 to 95% collected for May already. I think it is very driven by location and class. And I mean, the two types of markets that I've seen are really tourism driven and oil driven in terms of energy. And then also if they've had a large incidence of COVID, sort of the California's, New York's, those areas have been hit a lot harder than like your Dallas or Austin or San Antonio. 
markets. So what happens when your property is generating like zero or negative NOI? How do you sell your property? Well, first thing is you try not to sell your property, right? So you as a general partner raise money from other general partners to support your deal if you can. If you can't do that, you have to go to all your limited partners and try to raise money. If you can't do that, then you ask the lender, hey, can we put a forbearance on for three months? Try to get your property up and running within the next three months. If you can't fix it after the three months, you need to try to sell the deal. And people who are going to come in and buy it, let's say you bought it for $10 million, put a $7 million loan on it two years ago. Now someone's going to come in and buy it for $8 million and put a million down and you, your equity of $3 million is now $1 million. And so you're going to have to take a haircut on your equity to get the deal sold right now because it was cash flowing when you bought it and now it's not. Yeah, so... I guess, long story short, you can't get financing on a property that is zero NOI. Well, let me give you an example. On that deal, you would just do a loan assumption. Got it. So a lot of these loans that are Fannie and Freddie, you can't pay them off because there's a prepay, right? If there was no prepay, the type of loan that you could do is Fannie and Freddie wouldn't do it because, as you mentioned, the NOI is zero or negative. So you'd have to do a bridge loan, non-recourse bridge loan, or just a recourse standard bank loan. Yeah. It's pretty cool that in the commercial world, assuming loans is like a, a common thing. Whereas in the residential space, if you try to assume a loan, sometimes they'll you know uh, trigger a dual on sale clause and ask for the loan to be paid ASAP. Well, there's no reason to assume a loan in the single family world because there's no prepay. So why would I assume your loan? It just, I mean, doesn't really make any sense. I haven't seen that. I, mean, I don't work in the single family space, but most of the time I would assume that most people just go out and get a new loan. Yeah, exactly. Quick question for you. How long does it take typically for the whole process to get a loan done? I would say in normal times, 45 to 60 days for Fannie and Freddie. Um, your recourse bank lenders, non-recourse is probably 30 to 45 days. And then I would probably add 15 days right now just because you know it's harder to do appraisals, harder to do inspections. It's harder. People are working from home. So it's just it just takes a little longer to do these loans right now. So I would probably say added 15 days on the standard timeline. And have you ever heard of anyone using like a hard money loan to purchase a property that they know they can turn around? You can. I mean, let's say the non-recourse bridge lender right now, they're going to give you, their interest rate's probably 5%, maybe 6%. A hard money lender is going to be 10 or 12, and they're going to charge you two points up front. And so on smaller loan amounts, I think that's okay. Maybe a million dollars or $2 million hard money loan, that's probably okay if you're turning around a property, but you know, to do a $10 million hard money loan, you better be pretty sure. I had someone who was trying to do an $80 million hard money loan at one point, And we were like, whoa, that's crazy. Yeah. I mean, uh, that's a pretty big risk. I mean, most, most of the loans that I do are probably in that five to $15 million space. And so most people are trying not to do short-term maturity loans. It's just a lot of risk. I was just listening to Warren Buffett's annual meeting this past week. And you know, a lot of people who got in trouble were businesses that had sort of these revolving commercial paper lines and, you know, they just couldn't turn it over because the market froze up and, you know, Berkshire's like, all right, well, we're not doing that. Right. So that's what GE actually was doing that in 2008 and got them in trouble. And so a lot of these companies, I mean, you just can't always borrow just short all the time because sometimes that liquidity is going to freeze up. 
Yeah. So like what happens in a situation like right now where your balloon payment is due in two months and the market sucks. So you can't even refinance because your NOI is zero or negative. You got to put capital on the deal. So you can refi, but the lender is going to expect a very big pay down on the principal of the loan, right? Because if they go out, let's say that $10 million deal that you bought, the loan was 7 million. Let's say it's not Fannie Freddie. Let's just say it's a bridge loan or something like that. They go out, they get it assessed for 8 million. And they're going to say, all right, well, the loan should be 75% of that. So you got to pay it down $2 million, right? And so you have to go out and get equity and pay down this loan. It's funny. I mean, bridge lenders. So when I worked at GE, we did a lot of bridge loans. And, you know, 2009, 2010, 2011, I sort of moved from underwriting to asset management. And a lot of these people ended up, we just ended up extending these guys for like two or three years, as long as they made the payment. So as soon as the person stopped making the payment, we had to foreclose, right? Because we're just sitting there, the guy's not paying us. So what what are we going to do? We got to foreclose. But as long as they're making the payment, we can work with them because we didn't want the property back. The bank actually doesn't want the property back. So what I saw was multifamily, self-storage, things that had a diversified tenant base. And it wasn't just based on one tenant paying. We were fine. All those deals came back. You know, we extended it for three years. And by the time like 2012, 2013 came, they were fine. The deals that people stopped paying completely were the office buildings that were, you know, one tenant, the industrial properties that were one tenant, uh, the retail centers that had, you know, three tenants all based on an anchor that left, right? So all those deals where there was only, you were relying on, you know, it was essentially single tenant or very few tenants. And one person left, it went to 60% occupancy and a lot of these guys can't carry the loan, right? So it's very difficult. I mean, what I do with a lot of my general partners now, especially before April, before May and March, we sort of looked at an analysis and said, look, if income drops, usually let's say your income's 100,000 a month, if your expenses are probably 50,000 a month on your multifamily. So your income could drop 50%. You could pay all your expenses, but you still have your mortgage payment, right? So your mortgage payment's probably another 25,000 a month. And so- that's sort of the analysis. I mean, you could essentially drop, have a drop in collections by 25% and probably be okay. And so that's what I like about apartments. Yeah. I know people who are in the retail space and they're getting hit very, very hard. And I mean, I've heard some stories saying that multifamily is also getting hit pretty hard, but from your story, it seems like it's doing okay. I think it depends on location and class. Got it. Right. So I think you know, let's say you're in Florida or you're in Las Vegas or you're in New Orleans, you're in West Texas where, you know, energy just went to zero. I mean, those areas, I mean, we're seeing, so like all of our tenants right now here in Dallas and Austin, like they're at home, right? So it's not shelter in place, but most people aren't going out, you know, everything's sort of 25% capacity and, you know, we're banging on their door trying to get rent and they're using our asset, Right. Whereas in some of these other markets, like if Disney World is closed for the next 12 months, you know, those guys and the hotels aren't full, then all those guys who are in classy deals in those markets that are tourist dependent, they're gone. Like the tenant's gone, right? Like they're not staying there, like, you know, trying to find a job at the grocery store or the industrial warehouse, like they are here in Dallas, like where, yeah, they might have got laid off from their job as a waiter or waitress. But, you know, there's jobs at Amazon, there's jobs at, you know, the industrial plant, there's still a lot of jobs here. 
And so they haven't left. So that's what scares me in some of these other markets. And in Texas, we haven't really had this whole, you know, rent strike phenomenon that maybe that's a California or West Coast or East Coast thing where people are just like putting up signs that they shouldn't have to pay rent right now. Luckily, we have not had that in Texas. So that has stayed outside of our borders for now. That's good. It's good. Yeah. Has anything from this whole COVID-19 experience surprised you and has it changed the way that you plan doing business in the future? Yeah, I mean, I think the biggest surprise and sort of I was trying to figure out my investment philosophy. So I got this question a couple of podcasts ago was, James, what's your investment philosophy? And I was like, oh, well, I just sort of have a rough idea. And so I wrote it down and I'd always looked at other types of multifamily. So people think all multifamily is the same, but it's not. There's conventional multifamily, there's senior housing, there's student housing, uh, there's all these different types. There's affordable housing, there's all these different Section 8. And I was looking very closely at some student deals, some senior housing deals, and those specific niches are almost getting pummeled right now. Um, the senior housing piece that a lot of people thought was sort of recession-proof, you know, there's... I don't know, 10,000 people a day who are turning 65 or something like that. But right now, you, you can't even get into those places right now because of this COVID thing, right? And you're not going to lease up any of these spaces, right? No one's putting in their grandpa into one of these places right now. And on the student side, can you imagine, like, I went to University of Texas at Austin. There's 50,000 students that show up every fall. Like, in March, they sent all those people home. So a lot of those people aren't paying rent for the summer. I know that. So you got three months down. And then in student housing, you have to pre-lease all your existing units for next fall. You think anybody's pre-leasing right now? No. And so all of a sudden, like the things you thought were recession-proof ends up not being. And so that's, I'm sort of like, I want to stay in my lane. I want to stay in sort of like your sort of class B, multifamily, conventional, you know, diversified markets. I'm not trying to hit home runs here. I'm trying to hit singles and doubles as an investor. And I think if you do that, you will do very well. I mean, one of the guys I've started following is Howard Marks. Are you familiar with Howard Marks? Nope. I think he's with Oak Tree Capital and he invests in distressed debt. And one of his favorite quotes is, there are old investors, there are bold investors, but there are no old bold investors. And out of my 21, 22 deals, I have one that has maturity in the next 24 months. And that's probably the only one that I'm worried about. All the other ones have anywhere from four to 10 years left on their loan. They're all collecting at you know 90 to 95%. And so I'm not worried about them. But that one that is on a bridge loan, I am worried about. You have 20 months. That's a long time. <laughs> No, no, no. I'm sorry. But still, I mean, I want them to refi as soon as possible and sort of just reset the term for another four to five years. Because I mean, we're not going to sell the deal in the next 18, 20 months anyways. So let's just reset the term on the loan. And I think you just have to be smart. It's going to take a lot longer than you think to do these refis. And so I would rather them do the refi, even have to put a little money into the deal. I just don't want my 100,000 to go to zero. Right. Are you mostly focused or are you mostly investing as a limited partner in these deals or are you also on the GP side? As a limited partner. So, you know, I review the deck, I send in my money, and then I get a monthly check or deposit. 
and a monthly report and that's it. So do you ever work with, uh, what was his name? Michael Becker? Yep. So I'm in some of Mike's deals and he's actually the one that I met like in 2014 and sort of got me into this whole multifamily thing. So yeah, very familiar with Mike. Very cool. I mean, I, I only know it because of the show, right? Every time Michelle talks about it. Well, James, thank you so much for all of your information today. Are there any last tips that you think our listeners should learn about commercial loans? I think the number one thing is sort of get educated on the space, right? So learn as much as you can, but then it's amazing how much is not out there in terms of Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, like all these lenders out there, they put out like one page PDFs, like there's no information in those. Like you have to like really dig in deep. So I would say number one, get educated. Number two, just find somebody who has done what you want to do, right? So whether it's general partners or somebody who's done loans, like the simplest thing is just ask them, like, have you ever done a Fannie Mae loan or a Freddie Mac loan? And what's your success rate? And can you send me like two people that you've worked with before who have closed before? Like just send me two referrals on our two people, two testimonials that somebody's worked with. I think it's like those simple things, whether you're investing as a limited partner or even starting as a general partner, like those two things will save you a ton of time and a ton of money. Perfect. And how can people get in contact with you? The best way, I mean, you can just Google me, uh, James Zhang. You, I've, I'm on LinkedIn, YouTube. To see all my deals closed is just go to txmultifamily.com. And then, yeah, I'll give you my email and phone number. And so you can reach out that way as well. So it's just J-E-N-G at oldcapitallending.com. And then my phone number is 214-300-5035. Yeah. So if anyone needs a commercial loan, they should definitely give you a call. And you can work nationwide? Nationwide, yep. Perfect. All right, James. Well, thank you so much for your time today. It was a pleasure having you on the show. All right. Thanks a lot, Sean. Here are some of the key takeaways from this episode. Commercial loans are very different from residential loans. Almost all commercial loans have some form of prepayment penalty attached to it, so assuming a loan is a very common thing to do. If you need more leverage, you can add a supplemental loan on top of it. The process of getting a commercial loan is rather complicated, so definitely use this episode as a resource and call James for all of your commercial multifamily loan needs. I hope you enjoyed this episode. You can find the show notes and other episodes on our site, everythingrei.com slash podcast. If you live in the Bay Area, join our meetup group, where we meet up twice a month in San Jose at meetup.com slash everythingrei. And if you thought this was a great episode, let me know what your key takeaway was and share it with a friend who's interested in real estate investing. Thanks and have a great day. This was another episode of the Everything Real Estate Investing Show with Sean Pan. If you enjoyed the show, leave us a five-star rating. It will only take a second and it'll help a lot. You can contact me at sean at everythingrei.com. That's S-E-A-N at everythingrei.com. Thanks and have a great day.